Well, um, we're coming to Mark again. We're getting through Mark. We're in the second chapter, um, coming up to almost the end of chapter two. You remember last week that we were um, talking about the calling of Levi or Matthew. And this week we're going to look into a passage which is not immediately easy to understand. It's lovely when you get narrative and, and uh, there's a story, you can uh, dive straight into it, and, and the meaning is very often right on the surface. But this one's a little bit more profound, and we have to dig a bit deeper. So in the light of that, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that you have given to us, that you have supervised by your Holy Spirit. And even though there have been maybe 40 or more contributors to this book, your Holy Spirit has brought it together. And here we have the Gospel of Mark. And we pray that as we look into these five verses that you will give us great insight and that we'll all take away something that will really make our week better. Not just our week, but our entire lives. In Jesus' name. We need you, Lord, in this exercise of deciphering your word. We can't do it by ourselves. Amen. So let's turn to Mark chapter 2. Um, grab your Bibles whether paper or electronic. And let's have a look at verse 18 forward. Mark 2, 18 forward. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came to Jesus and asked, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both this wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Amen. So, what do you make of that? What is the real issue here? Now, I think primarily, primarily we're not dealing with fasting and wineskins. We're dealing with things that are deeper than those two things, although fasting and wineskin comes to the surface very quickly. We have four mentions of fasts, and we have four mentions of wineskins. But I think it's got to do with things that are deeper. Two things, in fact, which are much deeper, the old way and the new way. And how they relate to the differing behaviors of the disciples of John and the Pharisees on the one hand, and the disciples of Jesus on the other hand. Jesus is wanting to draw out for us that there is new conduct with the new covenant. There's new conduct with the new covenant and that the old way of behaving is incompatible with the joyful coming of the age of salvation. The old way of behaving is incompatible with the joyful coming of the age of salvation. And I think that those are the real issues there. Now, another thing that when, you, when you're taking a Bible passage week after week, you try to look for links from the previous passage to see where you're going. Is there a connection here or is it totally isolated? And upon a first reading, you would say, oh, totally isolated. This, and some com commentators even say that it's an insertion later on, but I don't believe that. 
I wrestled with this passage for a while, and um, I expected there would be a link, so I searched for it. And, but I thought it would be more obvious. Finally, I, came, I found it. And the first thing I noticed was that in last week's message, there was feasting in Levi's house. Feasting in Levi's house, and this week, it's fasting. There's just one E of a difference. The difference between this week and last week is the letter E. I'm beginning to sound like Sesame Street. <laughs> yeah. No, but that's what it is. Um, there is something to dig in behind that. Now, if the timing of today's scripture was immediately after last week's scripture, then um, it makes sense why these people, these anonymous people, would come to Jesus and complain about his disciples. You see, Jesus and his disciples were in there feasting while these other disciples were out there fasting. And so these disciples, these people came to Jesus and complained about them. What is going on here? Why are you not fasting like the others? Um, do you remember that Jesus was in there with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners? And uh, do you know how much they cared about fasting? <laughs> very, very little. Very, very little indeed about anybody's fast. They were just in there having a really good time. And it appears that the disciples of Jesus and Jesus himself cared as little as the tax collectors and sinners about this fast. And I thought to myself, did Jesus break an Old Testament fast? So I looked it up and discovered that they didn't actually. Do you know how many fasts that the Old Testament declared for the people to observe every year? Guess how many fasts do you think is it greater than 10? Less than 10? Anybody think greater than 10? Put your hand up. Okay. Anybody think less than 10? Put your hand up. You're right. Anybody think, anybody think more than five? Hand up. Anybody think less than five? Hand up. You're right. Anybody think more than two? Less than two? Put your hand up. You're right. One. One fast. This surprised me so much. It's the Day of Atonement that... Uh, the Lord ordered the people to fast. Anybody know how many feasts the Lord declared for the people? I'll tell you. It's too long to go over this again. It's seven. Seven feasts. Isn't that amazing? There's the, the joy in the Old Covenant. Um, I mean, if God was miserable, he would have made them have seven fasts and one feast, wouldn't he? But he, he turned it all the way around. How many fasts did the Pharisees declare in a year? Anyone say greater than 50? Put your hand up. You're right. Anybody say greater than 100? Put your hand up. You're right. 104 fasts the Pharisees declared in one year. Aren't you glad you're not a Pharisee? Yeah. I mean, some of you are skinny enough, but uh, by the time you would fulfill the works of the Pharisees, you'd be um, a skeletal. But the Pharisees declared 104 fasts. Did God require that? He didn't. God did not require all those fasts, and I'm glad he didn't, um, because he only required one. And that speaks something of the grace even that there was in the Old Testament covenant. And, uh, you know, when we're, when we're looking through the scriptures for links between passages, we must remember, please remember, as you do your study, that paragraphs that we see in our NIVs and other Bibles like that, they're an additional thing. They are not in the original. 
Also, the verses, the way they're laid out, that's not an original thing. So sometimes it can be a help and sometimes it can be a hindrance. And I think for our purposes today, it was a bit of a hindrance. So the link between last week's and this week is actually feasting and fasting. So Jesus was also accused. Not only was Jesus were Jesus' disciples accused of being uh, lax in their religious observance, Jesus also was accused of the same thing in Luke 7, 33. Uh, this is Jesus speaking here. He says, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. Yet the Son of Man came eating and drinking, you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, John's ministry was characterized, was like a monk-like existence. He went around with a very uh, basic item of clothing, camel hair. He ate very basic food, wild honey and locusts, which I'm sure we could have the honey, but not the locusts. Um, they sound a bit awful. Anybody eating locusts? Yeah, yeah, are they good? Oh, they're okay. Well, that's, oh, that's not too bad. That will suit a lot of guys in here. Um, so John's diet and his ministry was very, very basic. Yet, on the other hand, Jesus' um, lifestyle seemed to be a little bit mixed because he got a reputation of being eating too much and drinking too much. You know, but I don't believe for one moment that this is the case. Um, It says in one place that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head, and uh, yet he got this reputation of being a, a glutton and a drunkard. I think Jesus got that reputation because of the people he associated with rather than what he actually ate and drank. And um, he did that because he had a love for them. He wanted to demonstrate to them the kingdom of God. So he didn't isolate himself from them. He got in there and witnessed to them. And that might have something to say with our own, regarding our own witness as well. But what is happening here in this passage is these people who asked Jesus a question about his um, disciples not observing fasts, They're struggling to understand what true faith and true religion is. They only had an old paradigm, an old rigid paradigm, but Jesus brought in this new joyful paradigm which introduced really the age of salvation, this new era of salvation. And we live in an age today where people are confused about Christianity because they have an old paradigm to follow, a a paradigm that has been totally rattled. If you go around this state, you will see churches that are closed down, boarded up, and sold off for some other purpose. Because the religion has become irrelevant, redundant, despised. You know why they've become despised. There's so many people on trial now. There's been a royal commission. There's been abuses. And uh, the old paradigm has become despised. But yet... If we as believers were to live in the new paradigm as laid down by Jesus Christ and lived visibly before the people as Jesus required, perhaps, just perhaps, more people would be won over. We know at the end of the day that Jesus didn't win everybody over. It got right down to no one being with him. He was there alone when he was put to death. So what we are dealing with here today is a question of religious practice over against a vital relationship. Listen to the words of Mark again, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees were fasting, are fasting, but yours are not? 
You see, the disciples of John and the Pharisees expressed their faith in terms of religious practice. And it was repetitious religious ritual. Three R's. Repetitious religious ritual. And when the people came to Jesus, they had observed that these very zealous Pharisees um, were probably better people than these um, loose-living disciples of Jesus who didn't fast. That was the comparison they were making. And, uh, but listen to how Jesus answered them. I love his answer because in it we see something very special. Verse 19, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Look, at uh, Jesus' answer was in and around relationship and presence. It's an amazing answer. Jesus' relationship to these guys are, is described as a bridegroom, and they are the guests, and he's with them. The Pharisees and John's disciples spoke more about religious rituals and uh, outward things. But Jesus spoke of relationship and presence. And that, that's a wonderful thing because when it comes down to us as well, if our relationship is right with Jesus and we're present in his presence and he's present in our lives, then we reach out to others. We have a relationship with them and we're present with them. And so the thing, the ripples go out far and wide. And one of the greatest problems with Christianity down through the years is that it has moved away from relationship and presence to religious expression through rituals. And this is not only a problem in Christianity, but in most major religions, such as Islam, Judaism, and Hinduism, and all the rest. These religions are lived out and expressed primarily by religious practices. How many times do the Muslims pray every day? Five times a day. And how often do they expect God to speak to them? Never. How often do they really expect? It's all one way. You know, they're speaking to God, they're saying stuff, but they never, ever expect, ever, that God will speak back to them. Yet they're doing all these rituals. Their attendance at the place of worship, their adherence to feast days and to fast days, the pilgrimages, other things. Yet Jesus wants our faith to be expressed in relationship and presence. Isn't that wonderful, the way Jesus answered these people? Now, have a look at the bridegroom. Um, initially, I thought the bridegroom was the same understanding of Jesus as it is in Revelation, Ephesians, and 2 Corinthians, in that he's the bridegroom, we're the bride. But this is different. We're not the bride in this example. The disciples of Jesus and us, we are the guests. And it's that, almost like that brotherly, brotherly relationship that um, a bridegroom would have with his groomsmen. And uh, very close camaraderie. That, that Jesus is talking about here. And John 3, verse 29, links John the Baptist, Jesus, and the bridegroom again. It's one, it's one of the few passages that does that. Jesus, John the Baptist, and the bridegroom are linked again here. And it's John speaking this time. Listen to what John says. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. Isn't that relationship? 
That's, that's beautiful. John then said, that joy is mine, and it is now complete. And then he goes on to say, he must become greater, and I must become less. So in this portion of Scripture, the followers of Jesus, that's us, we are not the bride, but we are the, the friends and the guests of the bride. Although this passage is not primarily about fasting, I think it's time that we talked a little bit about fasting. It's a good thing to talk about. According to the Word Bible Commentary, fasting was a common rite in Judaism. So although we do it today, in Christianity at least some people do it, um, it has its roots there in Judaism. Deep roots, it says. At times it was an expression of mourning for the loss of someone or something. So um, when Saul was killed, on Mount Gilboa, the men of Jabesh Gilead came and they took his body away and they fasted for seven days. And when David heard about it, he fasted also. That was his uh, fasting for mourning. And then also it is um, an expression of contrition, penitence, a sign of repentance, marked by symbols of mourning. Do you remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, he says, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites, yes who kind of like make themselves up for fasting and they make themselves look miserable and then show everybody uh, what they're doing. No, Jesus said, don't be like that. But fasting combined with prayer was a statement of self-denial and self-humiliation, depicting one as a self-effacing and submissive person to God's will. So we can see that fasting in the Old Testament was mourning, penitence, self-denial and self-humiliation, all of which are really good things um, and things that we, we shouldn't despise, things that we should adopt as Christians. But the, the difference between the Old Testament fast and our fast is that we are fasting from the victory of Christ. They were fasting, looking forward to what some Messiah would have done sometime in the future. And that's the difference. There was joy in the, in the disciples' actions of not fasting. Their non-practice of fasting at that stage was a joyful thing. A joyful celebration. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting with a view or a hope to what would maybe happen sometime in the future, whereas Jesus' disciples realized the Messiah was already there. How did they know he was already there? Well, they knew because there were all these healings happening. We've been in Mark for the last number of weeks and months, and we've seen people getting healed. And what's more, we've seen people getting their sins forgiven. Isn't that an awful joyful thing, wonderful joyful thing to be a part of? Every day. Surely that's the reason why the disciples were joyful. Can you imagine being in the house of Levi? And it seems that Levi repented at that stage because he became Matthew, the writer of the gospel. Uh, and to see the gospel being heard by all those tax collectors and sinners, surely that would be um, a wonderful reason for joy, especially when no one, no God especially, required you to fast on that particular day. But as we said already, Jesus' disciples were accused of being less than zealous because of their non-participation in fasting. And uh, verse 18 of Matthew chapter or Mark chapter 2 hints very strongly at the negative comparisons that these people made between the Pharisees and Jesus' disciples. But you know, when they complained to Jesus, another lovely thing about Jesus' answer was that it was not only was it non-confrontational but it was defending his disciples. I love that. He defended his disciples. He didn't 
uh, say anything that uh, made them culpable of any misdemeanor. But he said, um, in, in a beautiful way, something that defended them. He said, when the bridegroom's here, the guests don't fast. But when he's taken away, then that's the time for fasting. If you have been accused in the wrong over anything, and you know that you acted righteously, know this, that Jesus will defend you. He will defend you. It may not be immediately. And in fact, it may not ever be on this earth that you find that defense coming forward. Think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hanged a few days before the war ended. He wasn't delivered here, but you can be sure that Jesus is defending him and that his accusers will have to answer for what they did. Claim this and hold on to it if you are suffering wrongly now. And let this help you endure. Having said that, there are other times when Jesus gave his disciples right royal rebukes because they deserved it. They weren't in the right. And he won't defend us if we're in the wrong too. This time it's clear that the disciples were not supposed to fast. And I suppose that brings us to um, looking into the right and the wrong time to fast. So let's have a look at the whole question of the timing of fasting. I think in the context of the passage today, Jesus was not putting a blanket ban on his disciples fasting ever before he left. Because, the reason I say that is because from some accounts in Matthew 17, 21 and Mark 9, 29, Jesus seems to recommend fasting alongside prayer for the removal of evil spirits. But at least we know that fasting is not pinned to the Old Testament. There is a time for fasting and a time not to fast. Perhaps another line of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 could be, but it isn't. Um, there's a time to feast and a time to fast. But we all know that there's time for everything under the sun, according to Ecclesiastes. I don't know if you've ever experienced fasting before. Um, I grew up in a church where it was only in the Bible. Um, no one ever talked about it, apart from the stories of the Bible. No one ever practiced it. And uh, so I went off to the ship when I was 21, and I encountered lots of things there in the ship which I'd never encountered before, but one of them was fasting. Our captain, Jonathan Stewart, I began to notice he's never here on Wednesday. Where is he? Sitting at the dining room table and looking over where his seat always is. He's not there. Every Wednesday he wasn't there. Then we discovered he fasts every Wednesday. We got a doctor on board the ship who had done a major study, medical study, slash theological study, on fasting. And so he took us for a whole study in fasting. And we began to fast on the ship. It was very difficult for me because I worked in the galley. And food was always, always there in front of your nose. And the smell and everything else it was very difficult. But began to learn to fast. And we began to see wonderful results of, of fasting in our lives and in the life of the ministry. However, John Wesley once said, regarding fasting. Some have exalted religious fasting beyond all scripture and reason, and others have utterly disregarded it 
That's what John Wesley said. And some would accuse John Wesley of taking it beyond all reason. But nevertheless, I came across in my early life those who utterly disregarded it. On my way back, to, uh, away, on my way back from Argentina in 1988, uh, I called in at Virginia Beach to visit some friends. And uh, they took me to Sunday school one Sunday morning. And uh, having been in South America for such a long time, going to Sunday school and hearing songs in English, uh, the Lord really softened me up. I, I remember weeping a lot just hearing uh, some beautiful songs I hadn't heard for years. And um, the Lord really dug deep into my heart at that stage. But there was one thing that the Sunday school teacher said that I couldn't agree with anymore. And that was that fasting was not for this dispensation or this age. He said that um, it was only for the Old Testament. We don't fast anymore. But I disagreed. Why do I disagree? Well, verse 22 tells us why. Jesus said, when the bridegroom is taken away, then will my servants fast. And I believe that Jesus has gone in terms of his bodily presence. And we're fairly and squarely in the period of fasting. Now, that doesn't mean you fast every day or every week. And it doesn't mean either that there is an appointed fast. But it means that we have the freedom now to fast. And maybe even the responsibility at times. Um, in March of 1993, Andre and I, and I were... Um, I had finished my Bible college. Andrea was coming to the end of her Bible college. And so it was time to think about where we were going to serve the Lord. And Andrea kind of knew where it would be, but I was still not sure. And so um, we fasted, fasted for seven days. And in the winter, that's maybe, I'll not say it's not a good idea, but it's, it's hard because the cold goes right through to your bones. But after those seven days, um, not immediately, not even a few weeks later, but about seven months later, the Lord revealed to us amazingly clearly what he wanted us to do. And uh, it was so worth it. I would recommend to all of us to ask the Lord about fasting and when he would like us to fast and what he would like us to fast for. And he will show you. I'd encourage you to explore that. You might even want to have a look at uh, Richard Foster's book, um, Celebration of Discipline, he has a whole chapter there on fasting. But we're now in the New Covenant, and there's freedom in the New Covenant. If you look in the New Testament to see how many fast days have been laid out for us, you will find none. The church of the 6th century didn't like that. So in the Council of Orléans, they tried to force fasting on the entire church. So they set set days for fasting in the entire church there in the 6th century. On Friday, I was speaking to my mother in hospital in Northern Ireland. And she, I was asking her about the food. And she told me, oh, we had fish today. It was Friday. Do you know that that's probably a result of a decision that was made in Orléans in the 6th century? <laughs> the Catholic people to this very day in Ireland don't eat meat on a Friday. They eat fish. And so... Um, my mother had fish on Friday. And um, there is no biblical mandate for forcing the entire church into a fast. You see, that's old wineskins. Trying to make the new wine of the gospel and the new covenant of Jesus fit into old structures like that. 
that doesn't work. So let's have a look at the old and the new. So Jesus in this part of the passage is now contrasting the old way with the new way. And in so doing, he's showing us that the old had an old container and that the new has a new container. In other words, the old wine and old wineskins and the new wine and new wineskins. The old ways and the practices of John's disciples and the Pharisees were contrast or compared with the old wineskins. And then the new ways and the non-practice of Jesus' disciples are compared with the new wineskins. So Jesus is really teaching here in some ways that the old and the new cannot be mixed. That's what it means when you try to put um, new wine into old wineskins. They're all lost. You can't get the full meaning of what is intended. It all just spills out on the ground and dissipates. This is not to say that there are no vital links between the old and the new, because there are. And you could say, and we should say, that um, the new has its roots firmly in the old, and also that the new is fulfilled in the old. So let's have a look at the wineskins in verse 21. It says there that, uh, well, let's go to verse 22. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine in the new wineskins. So the fact that both wine and wineskins would be destroyed and ruined um, clearly teaches us that we cannot mix the old and the new. Jesus is saying there must be a necessary separation. Because if we do mix them together, we get confused about what the gospel is all about. We end up mixing works with faith. Uh, and we get all uh, wrong with our forms and our rituals and our religious practices. All forms of religion and ritual have no power of their own. And to obtain power, what they do is they make laws. And they force people to do stuff. Look at Islam and indeed look at historical Christianity. So moving on from these things, wineskins and fasting, to an announcement here of Jesus' departure. Verse 20, Jesus tells us for the first time, I believe, that he won't always be here. He begins to hint that he's going to be taken away. I suppose if we were beginning the Gospel of Mark and we'd never read the Gospels before, we wouldn't pick up on it. But in retrospect, looking back, we can see that this is a very clear hint that Jesus is preparing people for his departure. So let's recap. What have we learned this evening? Or what have we revisited? I'm sure many of you have already known this stuff. We have heard that the old and the new do not go together. We have learned that the new wine has a relationship and presence at its core and that the old wine is repetitious religious ritual. We've learned that um, what we have is a relationship with Jesus and not a code of conduct. We've learned that the ministry of Jesus is not compatible with that of his opponents. The nature of Jesus' ministry demonstrates the presence of something new and that something new is the new age of salvation. And that's a joyful age. It's uh, not something where we put on sackcloth and ashes and we fast for 104 days a year. It's something new and something joyful, as was seen in the house of Levi in the previous week. 
And uh, Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. That was something new. He was healing the sick. That was something new. And the lifestyle of the disciples was something new as well. And the, the lifestyle of the disciples is the theme of next week's story as well, when their behavior on the Sabbath is brought into account as well. So what does this mean for us today? I think it challenges us to see if we're living in such a way that the establishment, whether it's religious or non-religious, complains about us. If the establishment complains about us uh, for the right reasons, that's good. Do the religious folk around us today see that our faith is real because of our relationship with Jesus and his presence in our lives, coming through our eyes, coming through our actions, coming through the things that are happening around us, the, the people who are being saved, the people who are being healed, um, the amazing, wonderful things that are happening in our lives. Just, do people see that? I hope they do. I want to ask us today, are you following something that's repetitious, something that's just mere religious ritual, or are you drawn by a real relationship to Jesus Christ. You know, we, we are worshiping tonight in a conservative, nonconformist, evangelical church. Uh, we don't have any icons on the wall. We don't have any incense. We don't have any uh, wonderful smells um, or candles or anything like that. But you know what? We can still have these repetitious religious rituals. And this could be one here, this communion tonight. And it could be for us just a repetitious religious ritual. And uh, I trust that it isn't. So that's why I would love us to take some time just thinking about um, self-evaluating our hearts as we come before the Lord tonight. Even this feast here is about relationship and presence. Jesus gave us bread you know that um, the word companion is made up of two Latin words? C-O-M is com, which means with. Pan is bread. So a companion is one with whom you share bread. Why, that's one of the well, it could be one of the reasons why Jesus gave us bread. Why did he give us bread and didn't give us some ritual? I said this morning, like, uh, why did he not give us a, a totem pole or something? No, he wanted to give us something that exemplified um, relationship. And he gave us bread. And he gave us wine to exemplify his love for us, his death, shedding of blood to wash away sins. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. I would like us to look at Luke twenty-two seventeen, Just as we come into communion, and as we come into a time of just meditating on the Word of God and on our own hearts to see if we are tending towards this old package, this old wineskin, or if we're tending towards the new wineskin and the new wine. Luke 22:17. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Look at that last phrase, do this in remembrance of me. That's just completely about relationship. Jesus knew that we needed to remember him and what he did, and he asked them to do it in the form of this feast, another feast. Although you won't get fat on this feast, but spiritually we can. We can get nourished on this feast today. May the Lord bring grace to us through our partaking in the communion service tonight. May he speak to us deeply regarding where we are with our thinking, where we are with our relationship with him. Jesus is present here tonight. He went away, but he said, if I go, I will send another. He sent the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he's with us tonight, and he's speaking to us. Open your hearts to him tonight. Have you given your life to Jesus yet? Tonight would be a wonderful night to do that. As we see before us, the whole symbols of the gospel, Jesus' body and his blood, that was given in payment for our sin, for your sin, for my sin. May the Lord bless us as we go into just a few moments of meditation, self-examination, and then we can partake of the elements. We'll hold the cup until the end, and we'll, we'll drink it together. Um, after a few moments, may the council members or staff members, who um, they will know who they are, please come forward, three, I believe, and um, distribute the elements. Okay, let's just have a time of quietness. Mm-hmm.